The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to another edition of the East Cavalier Podcast. As always, it's your boy, Mac. Joining me today, my friend, my co-host, Corey Walsh for the sword. Corey, how's it going, man? I'm doing good, Mac. It's playoff time. We're heading to MSG. Things are looking good. Certainly they are. We don't know which version of the Knicks are going to show up just because I feel like we've seen them not necessarily make adjustments after uh, after game one, after getting trapped so hard by the Cavs in game two. Cavs, on the other hand, that stellar brand of defense, it's there. I'm hoping that we bring it to the Garden because, uh, you know, it's no, no surprise. Players seem to want to play the best when they go to the Garden. So I'm very, very excited to see that happen. Also joining us today via the ringer is Michael Pina. Michael, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining the show. First off, you know, you just penned a beautiful article about Evan Mobley. And one of the things that I have come to learn uh, while doing this podcast is that, you know, me and Corey, um, I like to think that we're kind of homers here and we see things through uh, wine and gold tinted lenses often. So it's always nice to get an outside perspective. So we're just not sitting in our homer takes all days. <laughs> So with that being said, man, tell us a little bit about the first time you watched Evan Moby play and the impression that he left on you. Oh, wow. That's a really good question. <clears throat> I mean, I do not watch college basketball at all. So it would have been had, had to have been uh, either summer league or uh, some point early on in his rookie season. And I mean, everything you read about him before he started his NBA career kind of was true. Just a defensive phenom could move his feet, incredible length, incredible anticipation, uh, freak athlete, uh, not as developed on the offensive end, but through the roof potential two way uh, could have been the first player selected in the draft easily. And I mean, his rookie year easily could have won rookie of the year. Tremendous season. I think the Cavaliers doubled their win total. There's a few reasons for that. But uh, Evan Mobley just showing up and being someone who can fit into these gigantic abnormal lineups and make them look incredibly effective was a huge part of that. And so, yeah, just... He's kind of been amazing since he's first stepped on the floor, since the first time I watched him in an NBA game. Certainly. I like see this Defensive Player of the Year award race go down to the ledger, it seems. And, you know, me and Corey here, we're we're pulling for, for Mobley to, to get that as he is the youngest player ever to become a finalist for that award. And I don't know if it's just me, man, but – I feel like this is now the second season in a row that uh, that our guy has gotten robbed <laughs> for, an, for an award that I feel like he frankly deserved. Uh, and that's no disrespect to Jaron Jackson Jr., who had an, a phenomenal season. But I just 
I kind of felt like the the body of work that Mobley put together um, combined with the amount of games that he put on tape in comparison to Jaron Jackson Jr. And then you look at the uh, the runner-up in Brooke Lopez, who was also phenomenal this season. But uh, a lot of phenomenal defenders on that uh, Milwaukee Bucks team. So I'm, I'm of the mindset that Evan Mobley got robbed in regards to that. But uh, very, very in awe of the potential that Evan Mobley has showcased. And the fact that he has been able to uh, finish as the youngest finalist for that award just speaks volumes about just the the amount of potential that we've seen from him. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if he was robbed. <laughs> I don't know if I can go that far. Uh, <laughs> no, Jaron Jackson Jr. had an unbelievable year. There was a lot of really good defenders who were up for this award. Uh, Brooke Lopez, I think, was the only player in the league who contested more shots. Uh, led the league in blocks, I believe, or Jaron Jackson Jr. did, block rate, et cetera. Um, I personally voted, I had a ballot this year, um, and I voted for Draymond Green first. I had Mobley second, I believe, Mm -hmm. and, uh, Brooke third on my ballot, but you bring up a really good point with the minutes total. That was a huge factor in why I really credited Evan. I think he only missed two games this season. He played like a thousand more minutes than Jan Jackson Jr. So had him above the ultimate winner of the award. And I don't think it'll be. I mean, I think that those two, uh, Triple J and, and Mobley, will be kind of like battling it out for this award for the foreseeable future. Both of them are absolutely tremendous defenders. Evan Mobley gets a lot of attention on the court, and you wrote a really great piece. If no one's checked it out on The Ringer, you should definitely check it out. I'll definitely retweet it again after this interview. But um, when you were talking in the ar- article, you were mentioning a lot of personality stuff in relation to Evan Mobley. So I as, like I said, as much attention as he gets on the court, when you were uh, interviewing him, what stood out about him off the court to you that you feel like doesn't get the attention that the on-court personality does? Yeah, I mean, his on-court personality is, like, non-existent. <laughs> just watching him before I knew anything about him, really, or read anything, or started researching or talking to people around him, I, he looked very... I mean, he doesn't emote on the floor. There's so many comparisons between him and Kevin Garnett, which is really funny because one is, you know, <laughs> spittle flying and uh, clapping in your face, talking trash. And the other one just like blank stares no matter what he's doing on a basketball court. And then you talk to, you know, I before I interviewed him, I spoke to a whole bunch of people in his family, a bunch of teammates, coaches. And basically everyone said the same thing, like, good luck with your interview because Evan doesn't really talk. (laughs) And I was like, okay, cool. So I had that kind of, I understood that going into it, which was wonderful. Um, But he was, he was terrific. Uh, We sat down for about an hour um, at the Cavaliers practice facility a couple weeks before Christmas. It was a long time ago. And, uh, you know, talking about basketball, he We'll kind of pick and choose whether or not he wants to go too deep. But when we started to talk about uh, confidence level and kind of learning about yourself, he's only 21 years old, still maturing as a as a person, let alone a basketball player and just someone who's super focused on getting better every single day, uh, super focused on just a lot of weird stuff uh, that is littered throughout <laughs> the story, which I thought was really cool. And uh, one thing, my probably my favorite thing that he said to me, the most interesting was when he, we were talking about confidence just as like a, 
a skill that you can learn and hone in your life. And, you know, he mentioned that he loves watching Mike Tyson videos and Mike Tyson interviews and how Mike Tyson changed his mindset from being this person who's meek outside the ring to having this mentality of I will dominate anyone in a boxing match. Um, and I thought that that was really fascinating for someone who off the court, uh, I'm not going to say he's not a confident person, but he is self-aware enough to understand that he needs to get better in that area if he wants to be as the best he can on the court. And so that's what I thought was most interesting, I think about him and, just his general mindset set and like willingness and uh, drive to get better. Yeah. I feel like that kind of translates to his on the court as well, because you see a level of maturity and poise at his age that you don't really see, especially in bigs. I feel like bigs have a slow development curve in their approach to the NBA because it just moves so much faster. And just because uh, bigs, I feel like have the hardest translation because there's a lot of great college bigs that never can pan out in the NBA and Mobley, just at even college, you would watch. I watched a few of his March Madness games, just doing my Cavs pre-draft, hoping for the seeing what we could get. And <laughs> he didn't necessarily jump jump out offensively, which is what I think a lot of people, like common fans, when they're watching college, if they don't see anything on the offensive end, they're like, oh well. But then you watch him defensively, and he was just the connective tissue of that USC defense. In the same way that he's translated to for the Cavs, he's just a Swiss Army knife and allows the defense to do a lot of different things and give a, a completely different look than most defenses can offer. But when, uh, well, who, what do you feel like is Evan Mobley's game right now that is pretty underrated in the general fan consensus? Like when watching his tape, what jumped out to you that you necessarily didn't know before? Yeah, I think on the offensive end, uh, people kind of look at his box score numbers and they think that he didn't make a huge leap as a scorer or anything like that. And, you know, he increased his efficiency, et cetera. But I, I think offensively when he has the ball in his hands, just as a selfless decision maker, he's like elite. He's you can't in the short roll. He makes the big to big pass. He kicks it to the corner, doesn't force anything, which is a part of the reason why his scoring numbers aren't as high as maybe the average fan would expect them to be given the uh, the praise that he receives. So I just think his, his playmaking as a five is like in space is amazing. And the fact that he's on a team where, you know, he spends the offseason working on his one-on-one -on -one game, thinking he's going to be more of a featured scoring option in the offense. And then they trade for Donovan Mitchell <laughs> and it just shifts everything. And he, I thought he adapted tremendously well for a 21 year old um, emotionally. And then just skill set wise, he can really play with anybody. Um, obviously the three point shooting needs to improve and, super early in his career. I don't think that should concern anyone, but as a playmaker in the short role, I mean, JB told me best uh, like pocket big that he's ever seen, which I was just like kind of flabbergasted by that quote. Um, JB has been around a really long time. So that's a really important part of his development, like uh, making everyone around you better, not hunting shots, not hunting stats. That's like, you can't teach that. And so I think that that is just absolutely critical as he goes on and has what should be an amazing career. 
One of my favorite things about Mobley this season was his willingness to kind of, you know, after everybody was shouting from the rooftops that we might see some type of huge offensive breakout, then to trade for Donovan Mitchell and seeing how the touches are spread throughout the rest of the roster. One of the biggest things that really excited me was his ability to just simply take a back seat uh, and let the guards do the work. But with that being said, there are still areas of improvement for his game. What would you think heading into this 2023 offseason would be the biggest area of offensive improvement that he can work on? Yeah, definitely outside shooting, um, without a doubt. You see it right now. I don't know if you guys want to talk about the playoffs, but like <laughs> nobody's guarding him when he's on behind the three-point line. It's a big – that's the biggest concern by far. And – I don't think that you talk to his, you know, his skills trainer, you talk to the coaches, assistant coaches, his teammates, like he puts in the work. They're not really concerned about it at all. His stroke is fine. The shots will fall. It's about confidence. It's about repetition. Um, And I think also what's really interesting to him is punish, being able to punish defenses that ignore you. So that's crashing the offensive glass. That's, you know, catching it behind the three-point line in the corner and driving. I think he had one dunk in game two where that was the case where Randall just totally ignored him, caught it, two dribbles, he's at the rim. I think that those plays are really important in the meantime before his shot comes around, but like making free throws because he's going to be hacked to bits (laughs) next season. (laughs) Uh He led the league in dunks this year by like a pretty significant margin. Uh, Making free throws, making open threes, uh, I think that is – that's pretty critical, I think. And then just obviously getting stronger and being able to muscle mismatches in the post. Yeah, I feel Absolutely. like that's one of the most complex parts of this Cavaliers who's going to start the three going forward in the series puzzle is because when Isaac's on the floor, you basically have three non-shooters with the mm-hmm. two guards and the gravity that those players have is almost non-existent. The only true threats from the three-point line are going to be Darius and Donovan. So when you plug someone in like Karras, it opens up a lot more for the offense. But if you have Isaac in and he has minutes opening that are similar to how game two opened where they had to yank him because he just was too tepid at times, then like if Mobley could stretch the floor even to the extent that Giannis shows sometimes in the post. He's like, Giannis is by no means a good three-point shooter. He just purely has those attempts just so the defense has to somewhat step out when he's out there, even though they would love more than anything for him to consistently shoot rather than run at their chest. But Mobley, I feel like, is in a boat where – his shot is like it's extremely inconsistent and it's more of a miracle than anything when he knocks it down due to his slow release. It's, it just is painful to watch at times. I honestly feel like his brother Isaiah has a quicker (laughs) release than he does right now. And he's only like one year into G league experience. And his shot has grown so much with this Cavaliers staff that you would only hope that the Cavaliers can do the same thing with Evan. And if it works all se- all off season on it, hopefully defenses by next season can respect it and stretch the floor. When you watch Mobley though, I feel like there's a lot of comparisons offensively for what big he could turn into. Some people initially thought he was going to be like a Joel Embiid type. Some people think he's a Kevin Garnett type. Some people think he's Tim Duncan-esque. Who do you really see him like at his peak? Like if everything works out, what's he going to be? I think KG is the best comparison on both ends. Like, KG offensively, like defensively, the similarities are just like obvious. Um, KG offensively, like 04, 03, 
on those Timberwolves teams that started to actually be good. Like he played point guard in the playoffs of like a game seven in the uh, conference semi Western conference semifinals. Uh, He did everything. He's an incredible playmaker, super selfless throughout his entire career, made the right reads, was a reluctant shooter because if a, if he had two on him, he just wouldn't shoot. Um, and he was doubled all the time. So I think that that comparison is is apt. Their body types are obviously very similar. And I think just the way they approach the game, the way they see the game, uh, their feel, et cetera, like that's the guy I would – like I don't see him being a back-to-the-basket uh, – behemoth at any point in his career which is perfectly fine that's how the game is going but he can also like grab and go uh grab just like pull down a defensive rebound and push and transition go into dho's obviously super effective role man i think that the personnel around him will dictate a lot of what skills are featured especially through the next few years of his career just because of who else is on the team with two high usage pick and roll playmakers and Donovan and Darius. So, um, but I think as he, as Evan develops and improves, you will see more parts of his game. And, um, you know, just talking to a skills trainer for my story, he told me that this summer, what they're going to do is focus on like the 15 foot out uh, individual one-on-one moves that like the, just a general face-up game that KG had, because Evan can totally master that. And um, once you're like drawing fouls on the perimeter because your shot is so nice, which is something that obviously Joel Embiid has perfected, you're just incredibly difficult to guard. And so once people start respecting his jumper, even just like an 18 to 12 to 18 footer, it'll open up so much for him. It'll open up so much for everybody. So I think that I know I answered them kind of rambling a little bit. But <laughs> I think that uh, KG is probably the best comp, I would say, for him on both sides of the ball. Of the ball. I love that comp. And, I mean, if if the Cavs get a version of, of KG, that'll be awesome. Uh, you referenced fit just a – well, uh, personnel just a, a moment ago. Where do you see Mobley's fit on this Cavs team in the future? And does that uh, future also involve a continued great fit with Jared Allen? Yeah, I don't see why not. They have the best defense in the NBA this season. Um, I don't think that – and, by the way, their offense was really good when Jared Allen and Evan Mobley were on the court, too, this year. But So I don't think that anything is wrong, per se, about um, just the – I mean, it's kind of an unorthodox pairing, for sure, playing two bigs who don't space. That's not something you see in the NBA today. Uh, and a lot of their development together as a tandem will kind of hinge on Mobley, I think, in particular, his ability to step outside and be more effective on the perimeter. Although I live in Brooklyn and I covered Jared Allen when he was on the Mets, <laughs> and I remember them working on his corner threes almost every day. So maybe that pops at some point. I don't know where it is in the development. <laughs> maybe he goes the Brook Lopez route and develops a late career. Hey, it could happen. Um but I, I don't think that that's really an issue. I think when you talk about fit and personnel, um, like they just need more depth on the wing and then you'll be fine. I think in the front court and in the back court, I think defensively Garland and Mitchell did a really good job and acquitted themselves and their reputations and offensively you get another spacer or, I mean, 
I don't think Karis LeVert is the answer, unfortunately. But someone like him who's just a little <laughs> bit better would be terrific for this basketball team. Man. Damn, yeah. So <laughs> what a bummer. What a, I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, we, we, we love Karis LeVert here. But yes, I, I know there is a huge contingent of fans who feel that, you know, he's more of a bridge gap or, you know, mm-hmm. stopgap option than anything at that wing position. Um, I when you were writing the article, it was around the time where Mobley was kind of going through a rough spot where the national media was kind of pointing it out how he was not necessarily taking the jump that many people expected. And as the, by the time the article did release, obviously we had that massive stretch of 30 plus games towards the end of the season where he kind of did get grow into that next role and a next stage of his career. What would you feel like was the biggest difference from December to the end of the season in terms of Evan Mobley's game? I mean, I think offensive aggressiveness is the easy answer there. He just looked for his shot more, um, was able to play the five a lot more because of uh, Jared Allen dealing with, I don't know, how, how many injuries did he have? I know he got poked in the, the eye. Is that the only thing that kept him out? I'm not sure off the top of my head, but. That was definitely the one that took the most time. He might have right, just had a few DNPs, jump. but yeah. Yeah, and, you know, playing the five full-time with more space, you got to see him do a little bit more stuff. The performance against the Bucks was obviously tremendous. Um, The, I mean, he had a whole bunch of really great games scoring the ball, and be it just, you know, cleaning up as a role man, but then also, uh, you know, flexing some things from the mid-range and the mid-post. And um, I thought that Garland and Mitchell did a really good job looking for him. And his teammates showed confidence in his ability to um, attack one-on-one. And also, he was, like, noticeably stronger. And he entered this season after, uh, I think he sprained his ankle in training camp or the preseason, if I'm not mistaken. And that was one thing that him and I talked about that I don't think was in the story, but really impacted his ability to kind of come out the gate really strong and fast and kind of how he wanted to and got a little bit down on himself at the beginning of the season. And then it's an adjustment period with Donovan Mitchell in the foray. So I think once he settled into the season, um, uh, particularly like right before the All-Star break and, and since, he was just kind of a different player in terms of uh, his confidence level and his aggression. And like defensively, he was always just one of the best in the entire NBA, but I thought things went up a level offensively. Going into the mindset of Evan Mobley, we'll shift to the postseason now with the matchup versus the the Knicks. Uh, you did release another great article today on the ringer about how the Cavs have been targeting Brunson, but uh, back in regards to Mobley, uh, I feel like Cavs fans as a whole have been kind of, I don't want to say like shocked, but I guess a little surprised seeing as he's shown so much poise in past situations that Mobley's kind of looked a little frazzled offensively and playing out of his own comfort zone. What, Outside of just jitters, what are you noticing on film when you watch that's so like so different from the regular season? Yeah, I mean, the first game was uh, like, you know, not great um, in terms of just his ability to finish. I thought he I thought he was like 
like I think that when you're in the paint and you're shooting over Mitchell Robinson and a couple of those don't fall and they hit the rim and they roll off, like that's fine. You'll live with that. It's not great. Um, I think that the short roll decisions that we talked about before with him, I think JB's quote to me was like, he makes the, and he said this a bunch of times, but he makes the, makes the right play a hundred times out of a hundred. He was not making the right reads. <laughs> um, and I think in the first play, of the or like three possessions in the beginning of game two, where the first one he catches it, uh, looks to Okoro in the corner, does not pass it there, looks at Allen, thinks about throwing the lob, and then like tosses up this floater that like hits the back of the rim, does not go like he just it was very hesitant, it was not smooth. Um, a play later, he challenged Mitchell Robinson uh, at the basket, uh, could have, I think. Mitch Robinson probably fouled him on that one, but didn't get the call. Um, and I thought that it was potentially going to be kind of a, just like a part two of what we saw in game one with him in terms of uh, his ability to finish around the basket, but he kind of settled in and was really, I thought he was like terrific. Um, and, you know, I think one of the bigger issues or the worst faux pas that he had in game one was not boxing out Julius Randle at the very end of the game. That's another play that I think he needs to be more conscious of. I think the whole team does really. Um, if they're going to win this series, you have to limit second chance opportunities and Mobley is a huge part of that. But just in terms of like, like I think defensively he came to play like, yeah, he's, he's held, uh, he's held, I want to say Randall to six of 23 uh, from the field. And I right. think one of the biggest things heading into the series was the size, the size advantage that Julius Randall had going in up against Evan Mobley, who we know who has bulked up since he's entered the NBA, but still not quite beefy enough to defend up with some of the more traditional big body types. So how have you felt about the, de- uh, the defensive end? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple plays here and there where Randall will like lower his shoulder and tip Mobley's chest, move up and back, and then he'll fall away. Uh, you're just gonna have to live with those right now, and frankly, that's you know not the highest percentage shot. And I don't think that the Cavaliers' coaching staff is gonna be like completely shifting their game plan to stop it. Uh, but other than that, like, I just feel like he's really limited and made it really difficult for Randall, made it really difficult for anyone he's on, to be honest with you. Um, and I think that his, you know, he's just the, his shifts, his rotations, his uh, timing, all of it has been really good. Like he's not jittery. He's not nervous on the defensive end at all. I thought he's brought it uh, as avoided foul trouble. So I think that offensively and scoring, he might've been in his head a little bit in game one. I mean, it's his first playoff game of his NBA career. It's a lot of players aren't like up to that moment necessarily. Um, But I think he'll be fine as this series goes on. I think it's going to be a long series, a tough one. And like, he's not fun to go up against. So (laughs) I don't think that Randall who loves to isolate and will make decisions that can really frustrate his teammates at times. Like if he's challenging Mobley because he's stronger, he thinks he's stronger than him. I think that's generally a win for the Cavaliers. 
your article you had today highlighted a lot of various um, of clips of how the Cavs are attacking Jalen Brunson and a, lo- a lot of ways that the Knicks could possibly counter the high guard pick and roll they've been putting Brunson in a lot. Do you feel like with this switch, though, at the end of the day, the Knicks' options to counter are very slim, or do you feel like there's a good roadmap for them to try to avoid the, a repeat of Brunson being battered around the court defensively? I think it's an issue. Um, I mean, their execution was really bad in game two in particular, um, where the coverages were, I, you know, I don't think they were, I don't think they were good like coverages to begin with. And then I don't think they were executed in the best way. And I thought that Karras in particular really took advantage. Um, he'll have to be as aggressive as he was in game two. I think he played 40 minutes for a reason. He did a really good job of making Brunson work, um, knocking down threes that were open because of how Brunson was defending the ball screen, attacking the gap, all that stuff, finishing at the rim. He was great. Uh, I, you know, there are things you can do in situations like that. You can help behind a little bit more. Um, you can pre-switch and try to take Brunson out of the action and then you can just like switch the ball screen, which I, I think and for Knicks, I hope that they see that because that's just like the simplest potential solution here. It's something that they didn't try. They haven't tried once in this series yet. So I would look for switches a little bit more. And if you get Brunson on Donovan Mitchell one on one, that's not like the greatest outcome for you if you're the Knicks. But and a lot of things, a lot of bad things can happen, but it just like is easier to defend for the four other guys on the court and any, everything else just like wasn't working. So I would switch a little bit more and see where that gets you, but mixing up the coverages and not like, I mean, there was just some possessions where he's just like, isn't doing anything. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know what the coverage is. I don't know <laughs> what the scheme is. So you got to execute better. You got to be on point. You can't foul and you got to make them pay on the other end. That's that's their path, I think, if they want to win. I, there's been a lot of Knicks players that have been struggling in this series. I think that's been the underlying thing. I think everyone's kind of focusing on the fact that Darius kind of showed out on a national stage, but you don't really hear the same dialogue going on for how Quigley and Barrett have kind of underperformed. I mean, I, I listened to Knicks tape uh, podcast, and they were saying how, or Knicks film room, and they were talking about how Barrett could be the surprise player to kind of get yanked in this series in terms of minutes due to him just being having the possibility of doing what he's been doing offensively in this series, which has been a non-threat. Like Cavs can kind of cheat off him in defensive sets if they need to. Do you kind of see a roadmap for any of their players who have kind of gotten cold in this series to like Quigley or Barrett to get back into the game through like force of involvement? Or do you kind of feel like it's it's kind of a lost cause? No, I mean, Quickly should be – I mean, Quickly's been bad for sure. He's a really good player. He's had a really good year. I think he should be playing way more minutes than he has. I wouldn't be surprised if the Knicks went a little small, particularly if they go down in this game, uh, potentially force the Cavs to to downsize and really space the floor. Like Quentin Grimes is a really good catch-and-shoot option. Um, he hasn't made his threes in this series quickly. Obviously, hasn't made any shots. 
But like if you play, you know, Quentin, Brunson, uh, Josh Hart, uh, quickly, like these lineups that I don't think they've really gone to that much that are really versatile and can get after it defensively. Like I, that's probably something that I would lean towards. Like I'm not an RJ Barrett person. I don't remember any like shot or meaningful moment he's had in his playoff career. I I would not be surprised again. Like I think Josh Hart's way better than he is and is playing way better right now. I know he had that ankle thing at the end of game one, but he's an absolute gamer and creates second chance opportunities. He punished the Cavs in transition a few times already. So I would look at him to play big minutes. Um, I think Grimes and quickly are like two of the better defenders at their position, honestly. And particularly just in like basic pick and roll, like going under, going over, contesting, trailing, recovering they're really good at it they're tenacious um so these are kind of i mean they need these guys to play well i think and if they give if tibbs gives them more minutes at the cost of barrett like i think that's a net win for the knicks and conversely for the Cavs and looking at Isaac Okoro, who was pulled pretty much after three minutes after those two fouls, do you think that is a sign of things to come throughout the rest of the series due to the uh, the lack of spacing that we've seen? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this a little bit. Uh, I don't like, yeah, the spacing thing is, is, for, is real, absolutely. Uh, to me, the reason why he didn't play after those first two fouls is because of uh, the other end where um, – you know, it gives Brunson just this spot where he doesn't have to do anything. Because, like, you bring Isaac Okoro into a ball screen, you can just blitz, put two on the ball, give it to Okoro. Okay, what's he going to do with it? Absolutely nothing. Sorry, guys. I don't know if you love Isaac Okoro. Like, it's just <laughs> <laughs> in a playoff game, I just don't know what he's going to do, especially, like, if it's competitive and it's in the fourth quarter. So, like... That's why Karras was there. He was punishing it, and that was like a really – it was just a recipe for efficient offense that made Brunson work um, repeatedly. So that's why I think Shetty also – I don't know if he's going to even play. I think he's questionable. Um, Ankle sprain. I think they said he's leaning more towards playing. Yeah, so he's – I thought that his minutes have been like pretty good. And uh, he's even someone also who you can bring into the action and like defenses respect his shot at the very least, but he's also like capable of putting it on the deck and making something happen in the paint. It's not always pretty, but I think it's better. That's the Jetty special though. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think that's a better option than, uh, than a Coro. So I think for me, and I think that maybe that's uh, what JB was thinking is like we really have to punish Jalen Brunson and we can't let him relax. We can't let him hide. Um, and the spacing is like, that's a real factor as well, for sure. I don't want to diminish that, but I think that it was more like the playmaking and the ball screen of actions when they do the small, small pick and rolls. Um, I think that that was as big of a factor as anything. 
Yeah, I know JB came out after the game and pretty much said that they're going to try to keep it status quo because they respect the work he's put in and during out the whole season. But this is also the same man who in the play in games versus Brooklyn and Atlanta was not shy about plucking a Cora from those games as well. In the Nets game, I think he played last season in the play and he played almost similar minutes to what we saw in the last game. And it, I mean, there's a lot of Okoro fans out there. Max, one of them. He's just not going to say it because he doesn't want <laughs> to ruffle any feathers. But he doesn't give you the necessary volume. Or in the postseason, he's very unproven from that. Those are high-pressure shots, even if they're just routine corner threes because those are the mm-hmm. only spots Okoro shoots from. But we were he's coming off of a knee injury. There's a lot that's also going into it. We don't know the extent of this knee injury. It's kind of been like a question mark. Bone they bruise. Haven't, yeah. They haven't. They don't necessarily say if they yanked him for that reason as well. I think it's more along the lines, as you were saying, Michael, they were noticing that allows Brunson to not be uh, a focus for them. But yeah, the Cavs can, I personally feel like if they put a Coro back though, it will allow the bench to have some punch because there's something this Cavs team doesn't have. It's the depth that the Knicks bench does have. Mm-hmm. And not that the neck, the Knicks necessarily have like one of the best benches in the NBA, but they have great players that the Cavs can't really match up with. I mean, Dean Wade was a net zero in his minutes. Rubio has been a net zero for his minutes as well. JB wasn't shy about plucking his minutes either. Lamar Stevens hasn't gotten any tread. I mean, the Cavs options at the bench are very narrow. So if you put Levert into that starting lineup, I feel like you're kind of taking away from uh, an aspect of the game with the Cavs bench that they just can't recover from. You can't rely on Jetty Osmond and Danny Green to give you the Cavs offense off the bench. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. Um, I mean, you also can just like this is a thin roster as you guys know like that's just kind of what it is and you got your top four and then it's a lot of question marks so shorten your rotation uh hope nobody gets in foul trouble and play Mitchell and Darius and Evan Mobley like 44 minutes like <laughs> the JP special yeah take a page out of what the Phoenix Suns are doing right now they're playing those guys a million minutes they don't care so like that's also an option um I don't like I wouldn't worry too much honestly about um uh, the bench, I would be more concerned with just accentuating my best players and maximizing them over anything else. So yeah, I wouldn't like, you know, if he starts a Coro plays him five minutes and then that's it, that's fine. Um, Starts Danny green. I wouldn't be surprised starts. I don't expect him to do that. Starts Karis. That's also an option. (laughs) Um, but like, it's a thin team. It's a thin roster and there's just not a lot of options. Heading into game three, Madison Square Garden. We know that the Knicks are primed to respond. I mean, JB made adjustments. Very, very wonderful adjustments, by the way. Um, Tom Thibodeau, you know, he's been there. He's done that. He has the experience. What do you think we can expect from this Knicks head coaching staff uh, heading into game three? And do you think this is a must win for them? Um, I personally kind of hate the phrase must win until you literally have to win or your season's <laughs> over. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so it's not a must win for them. It's one that they obviously want to get. They'll be hyped for it. Um, the crowd will be amazing. Um, I expect the bench to play better 
at home, that's just a traditional like uh, thing that happens in the NBA playoffs. And, you know, Grimes will probably hit his threes uh, quickly, will not be one of the worst players in the series. Uh, maybe he'll get some better playmaking and finishing from Isaiah Hartenstein in his minutes. Uh, so, yeah, like strategically, I think that it's just crash the offensive glass, do the things that we talked about when it comes to defending the Jalen Brunson ball screens, uh, doing a better job of spacing when they blitz Brunson, getting off the ball quicker there, limiting your ISOs, even though they isolate a lot. Uh a lot of stuff like getting back in transition um, and then crossing your fingers when Karis LeVert gets open threes. Like that, that's kind of <laughs> the, the rest. But I also will say like, I don't think that they helped off of Mobley when Mobley was on the perimeter, which I would try to limit that as much as possible. I don't think they helped off him aggressively enough. I would totally abandon him and, they did a little, they like they have when he's even when he's in the strong side corner, they just will be in the paint and then not even bother contesting, which you rarely see. Um, but even when he's on the weak side, just be in the paint and take away drives, driving lanes for, for Darius, make it tough on Darius with the floaters, the pull up twos. Same with Donovan Mitchell, those guys are gonna, if those guys are gonna hit their pull up threes. Um, and the tough ones off ball screens, then you got to just tip your cap. They're great players, but I would try to take away the paint as much as I could if I was the Knicks. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. I hate to put you in this position, but I got to ask, give me a prediction for game three. Um, hmm. I'm not good at predicting like individual games. <laughs> I, I'll say the Cavs. I'll pick the Cavs. I picked the Cavs in six in the series. I think they're a better team, more talented team. Um, I think they have the best player in the series with Mitchell and I think that Mobley will get better and better as the series goes along as someone who plays major minutes. Randall's ankle is still a thing. I think they found something hunting Brunson that's important for them strategically. And yeah, I just think they're like, they're better and so I'll just pick the Cavs, I suppose. <laughs> I think best case for the Cavs in this series is that they split this these two at MSG because I think the Knicks fans, like Michael said, are just going to be insane, and they're going to fu- the bench is going to fuel off of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's no secret that benches play better at home than they do on the road. They'll feel more comfortable. I think it will allow players who have been struggling in this series to kind of ease into it. I said Cavs and six for this season started as well. I feel like I feel pretty confident in that. I think after they win one of the two in MSG, the Cavs will kind of get it going. And I think tonight will be very interesting to see if what Tom Thibodeau's counters are to what they saw, because if I would, I would feel very strongly that if the Cavs win this game, the Knicks are going to really kind of throw the kitchen sink in game four. And we'll see some crazy looks from the Knicks that we just haven't seen Tibbs do because Tibbs is a very, I feel like Tibbs is a guy who likes to stay with his rotations, keep them nice and rigid, but he's going to have to be flexible if the Knicks are going to have any chance because the Cavs are just crumbling their defense right now. Absolutely. If we know anything, we know Tom, you know, he's like I said, he's been there. He, he's done that. So he'll look to counterpunch 
uh, just like the Cavs did in game two. That said, just like we always tell you guys, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can at his Cavalier underscore pod on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and more. If you'd like to reach out to us via Discord, you know how to do that. Leave a rating, leave a review, send a screenshot, and send that to iscavalier53 at gmail.com, and we'll send you an invite. Michael, man, thanks for coming on the show. Corey, Mac, appreciate you guys. Do you have anything you would like to plug for why you got the time? <laughs> no, this whole appearance was a plug. So thank you so much. <laughs> appreciate it, guys. You've done great oh, work. If you haven't, guys, check it out on The Ringer. It just came out. Check it out before game three. It's a good read. If you haven't, it's good anyway. It's good to learn to see the intricacies of how the Cavs decided to dismantle the Knicks in game two. Thank you again, Michael, for coming on. This has been a blast. Alrighty, Go Cavs. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.